Faced with an uncertain future, many business owners and technology professionals don't have the time needed to invest in their business technology strategies. And as a result, they're afraid of their technology getting outdated and putting their company and customers' information at risk. The digital future is already here, but with all different choices in the marketplace, it's difficult to know which one will be the best fit for you and your strategic vision. Imagine having the peace of mind that your business is backed by the right technology investments that are tailored for your specific needs. Hi, I'm Brian Nichols, and I've helped countless business owners and technology professionals just like you, helping you make informed decisions about what technologies are best to invest in for your business. Voice, bandwidth, cybersecurity, business continuity, juggling all the aspects of business technology is messy. Let me help. Head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash help and sign up for a free one-on-one -on -one consultation with yours truly to dig deep into where you see your company heading and how we can align your business technology towards those goals. Again, that's briannicholsshow.com forward slash help to get your simplified business technology started today. We can become great at doing the, the things that we do well, the things that are, we focus on. Like I'm, I think our audience is great at selling liberty. I think we have yeah. been amazing at doing that. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. As a sales and marketing executive in the greater telecommunications cybersecurity industry, Brian works with C-level executives to help them future-proof their company's infrastructure for an uncertain future. And in each episode, Brian takes that experience and applies it to the liberty movement. You start to ask questions that pique his interest and get him to feel like, okay, this guy's actually got something that maybe can help me out. And then in your asking of questions and trying to uncover the real problems, build that natural trust. I know I went in a monologue there, man. <laughs> Instead of focusing on simply winning arguments or being right, we're teaching the basic fundamentals of sales and their application in the world of politics, showing you how to ask better questions, tell better stories, and ultimately change people's minds. And now, your host, Brian Nichols. Lockdowns, mass surveillance, forever war. Is this still the land of the free? It will be again. I'm Eric Brakey, and it's time to free America now. Because an idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome everyone to episode 25. Is it really episode 25? Yes, believe it or not, we are cruising along five days a week, Monday through Friday on Free America Now. I am your host and renegade statesman, Eric Brakey. Thank you so much for joining me for the next hour on Wednesday, October 13th. This is, of course, a Young Americans for Liberty production, and I am so glad to be joined by We've got a co-host today, a surprise co-host. His name is Brian Nichols. He is the host of the Brian Nichols Show on the We Are Libertarians Network. Hey, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Eric Brakey, thank you so much for having me on. And also, thank you to the amazing organization that is Young Americans for Liberty. You guys are out there fighting the good fight and making liberty we win. We certainly are. And I know you've been a friend of Young Americans for Liberty for a long time. You just had me on uh, to be a, a guest host this past Saturday on your program. So I thought, well, geez, well, let's bring Brian on. We're going to talk about some of the items in the news and the headlines today. And um, anyway, but before we jump into all that, um, Brian, uh, could you just, uh, you know, introduce yourself a little bit more for our audience here and then we'll jump into things for the day. 
For sure. Well, Eric, again, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, hi, my name is Brian Nichols. I am the host of The Brian Nichols Show over, as you mentioned, on the We Are Libertarians Network. Uh, my show and my role in this greater liberty world is to help people be able to take these ideas of liberty that are sometimes difficult to not only convey to your average person, to help them show the value in actually instilling these libertarian values through a sales and marketing approach. We're, uh, we're not focusing on winning arguments anymore. We're focusing on winning converts over, showing how to tell stories, meet people where they're at, and ultimately change people's hearts and minds. Awesome. Well, Brian, uh, thank you so much for, for being here. And well, let's let's jump right into the first story today, which is actually something that uh, we were talking about yesterday on uh, the uh, on Free America Now, which is Texas is fighting back against Joe Biden's clearly unconstitutional universal vaccination mandates, requiring all employers with more than a hundred employees to fire their staff if they do not get vaccinated, even those with natural immunity. Obviously, you open up the U.S. Constitution, and I don't see anywhere where we gave even Congress the legal authority to you know, mandate what people's medical decisions have to be for themselves. But certainly, we did not give U.S. presidents this policymaking authority. And Texas, uh, the governor of Texas, came out with his own executive order yesterday, pushing back, actually uh, saying that it is against the law in Texas for businesses to have vaccination mandates. Now, of course, from a libertarian perspective, I don't like any level of government telling private businesses what their policies should or must or must not be. Um, though I do think it's a little different when you're making an executive order against, you know, uh, against a federal executive order that is mandating something. It's well, anyway, it creates a very interesting dynamic. A Tenth Amendment dynamic, where now we are dealing with um, two different, you know, executive orders from different levels of the government, and the question is, what trumps what? Well, Jen Psaki, Joe Biden's press secretary, was asked about this yesterday about the executive order in Texas, and she said, you know, we know that federal law overrides state law. She also went on to say. It is unquestionable. Let me ask you, Brian, do you have any questions about that? Well, of course not, Eric, because we all know the super scary virus clause in the Constitution um, overrides everything. Uh, it gives the federal government unilateral power. No, of course, we have some questions here, Eric. Um, number one, anybody who took a basic civics class, which, granted, if we're all products of a public education, I'm not too sure how good that's going to help this argument. But we all know that there are these things called the amendments. And with that, the ninth and the 10th actually explicitly tell the federal government what it's not allowed to do. The ninth being, well, if it's not said in terms of, uh, you know, what the, the federal government's going to be doing, well, it's going to be assumed that that's the right of the person. And guess what? If it's not an explicit role of the federal government in terms of uh, actual authority, then we're going to go ahead and delegate that to the states. So I would say that the idea that this is not only unquestionable, but that this is almost being uh, trotted out as just basic civics. It's scary, man, because I think your average person, they're like, yeah, it, it is unquestionable, right? The, the feds, they're top and then the states and then local. That's that's how it works. No, your average person, I think we need to get back to talking about the basics and making sure people understand the basics. But also, let me ask you this, Eric, because now I got to kind of ask a question to you because I have a question is 
does this type of argument, ninth, tenth amendments and stuff matter anymore? Or, or do we just got to start looking at the federal government and saying, this is just way too big? Well, I, I, I think it should matter, certainly. And uh, we, we should do everything we can to assert the right of local control and local decision making. I think that, you know, as Thomas Jefferson said, democracy really only works on the local level where the regular average Joe has the biggest share of the voice in the decisions made impacting his own life. Um, but it certainly isn't the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. I don't remember them being really taught when I was, you know, in school. I remember learning about no. the supremacy clause, though. <laughs> I remember them teaching us in the government schools that the supremacy clause means that if the federal government passes a law, it trumps anything the states might put forward. But of course, if you actually go and you read the Constitution and you understand the debates had at the ratifying conventions and at the Philadelphia Convention, of course, that's not what the supremacy clause means. But, uh, but I certainly, you know, when I came out yesterday on Twitter, declaring that, I'm sorry, the unelected bureaucrats at OSHA do not outrank the elected officials of the state of Texas uh, because of the 10th Amendment. I certainly had all of the all of the folks on the left coming out with their, you know, their their uh, establishment approved opinions that actually the supremacy clause means that, you know, whatever the federal government says goes. But for those who are listening it actually means there are certain enumerated powers in Article 1, Section 8, powers that the sovereign states, because in our constitutional system, the states are sovereign, not the federal government. The sovereign states gave certain specific enumerated powers to the federal government. And under those enumerated powers, like pro providing for the common defense, national security, immigration, these are the sorts of things that, yeah, the Supremacy Clause applies to. If the, st if the states came out with their own immigration policy that contradicted federal immigration policy, the Supremacy Clause says the Congress out over overrules the states. But when Congress is trying to exercise a power we never gave them, then the states outrank the federal government. That's why we have a 10th Amendment. It's like they pretend the 10th Amendment doesn't even exist. Well, Eric, I think this is part of the problem is that we have, and I say we, it's just by the very nature that we have voted in people who have done this because here's the dirty rotten secret. Your average congressional rep, they don't like voting. They don't like putting their name on stuff because that means that they are now what? accountable. They're accountable for their vote. So what they have done and what the incentive structures are, are to empower unelected government federal bureaucrats to now start to take these name government policy that was supposed to be done by whatever jurisdiction that it was, it was granted. But now they're the ones going out and actually enacting these laws, or in many cases, Eric, they're making the laws. And I think this is where you're starting to see a lot of the pushback and a lot of the people starting to raise their eyebrows because it's no longer Congress passing laws and it's actually turning around to not even really having Congress having an influence. We're having unelected bureaucrats doing laws and regulations and then you're having the president of the United States just by the nature of signing his name to an executive order, putting in edicts that are supposed to take, what, control of all, all 330 plus million Americans? 
And I think that right there, that's why we have this growing intensity of this conversation about a growing national divorce, because the idea that we're going to have this one entity from Washington, D.C., completely control what the national conversation and also the national policy is going to be for 50 very, very, not only geographically different states, but the overall populace of each state is inherently different just by the nature of where they're located. I'm here in Philadelphia, PA, and I moved from originally upstate New York. And just to see that uh, discrepancy of where it was that I was up north to where I am in Philadelphia, despite being less than, what, 500 miles away or so, it still showed just how big of a difference it is, make it even more microcosm. Go up to New York itself. New York City is an inherently different place than the rest of New York State. So you're seeing a growing movement, I'd say, not just at a federal level, but also at a state level for more and more of a demand for people to say, enough of this delegation of what are my rights to people I've never voted for, I've never even met before, but all of a sudden I'm being told what I can and can't do, and I have no means to try and change that. I can't vote my way out of it. I can't leave. I can't you know, do something different for my business because my business is being impacted. Any alternatives that are, are being presented, are, you're, you're labeled a conspiracy theorist or your, your means of disseminating information is shut down. So I think that actually kind of goes into why this is such a, an important conversation, Eric. And it's not necessarily the, the constitutional uh, level of things, but rather the inherent awakening of people saying that something is wrong, regardless of the applications of legal minds from the supremacy clause standpoint in court cases. Just being an average person with the ability to rub two brain cells together, you look at what's happening, you think something's not right. Because here's the ultimate end game that we need to make sure we're always pointing back to, especially right now for our friends on the left, is are you okay with any of these powers that you're giving the federal government being done right now to be used against you in less than three years if the GOP wins the, the presidency? Because that's what they're setting up for the precedence going forward. And if only they were to be aware that, remember Trump, why was he so scary in 2016 when he got elected is because all the powers that Obama gave him. And then rewind, why was Obama so scary, Eric? Oh yeah, I had to do this little thing called uh, the Iraq War, Patriot Act, 9-11, all these wonderful things that took place during the Bush administration that gave Obama his power. It's a never-ending cycle. And until we wake up and start to address actually what's causing this to, to be a problem in the first place, it's just going to be Groundhog Day every single day, over and over and over again. Yeah, no, you, you you hit on a lot of very good points there, Brian. And, you know, you bring up this this topic of, of national divorce that, frankly, the right and the left are talking about more and more. It's, it's almost, uh, it's a little surprising to hear folks like Sarah Silverman on the left even talking about a Bernie Sanders supporter that she is. And it, it really does yep. seem to be a symptom of, as everything is politicized, and not just politicized on the local level or on the state level, but everything is politicized all the way up to Washington, D.C., whether or not you can leave your house or send your kid to school without a mask on is increasingly a policy that is being decided in our nation's capital, oftentimes not even by our elected officials, but by these unelected bureaucracies that our elected officials have surrendered their authority to, because as you as you rightly noted, 
they don't like to go on the record for anything controversial. They would rather let the unaccountable bureaucracy make the hard decisions so that the voters have no reason to vote them out. But as this happens, every single election cycle feels life or death. And it used to be hey, you know, your neighbor's voting for Bob Dole and you're voting for Bill Clinton and you disagree. But, you know, at the end of the day, you can still get together for coffee and you still like each other as people. But in such a, you know, in a single generation, we have politicized everything to the point where now it's like, oh, no, you're voting for that other guy. Like you are the enemy because that guy actually wants to take, you know, Stop me from being able to leave my house or that person wants, you know, to spread a virus that's going to like we we have we have uh, let things go so far so quickly that it, it seems untenable if we continue going down this road that national divorce becomes inevitable unless we return to the 10th Amendment and the decentralized nature of our constitutional order where, you know, New York can be New York. Maine can be Maine. Texas can be Texas. We can all just agree to disagree, live our lives in our own states as we choose. And, you know, if 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 you really don't like the way things are in your state, you can work to change it or you can move. But it's a lot harder to change things on the federal level than it is on the state or the local level. And it's a lot harder to leave your country than it is to leave your state or local municipality. So the more local we can make these decisions, the happier everyone's going to be. Not only the happier will they be, but also I think we will see a boom in terms of not just economic uh, increases. And I know we're going to talk about that later, but like true economic increases, because right now what's holding a lot of people back? It's the uncertainty. It's the anxiety. It's questioning what's going to happen tomorrow, not from necessarily my state, but from the federal perspective. And, and if you have a moment where you have a Really, it's it's an inevitable pause that's just looming over top of everybody. Naturally, businesses aren't going to want to do to really do much. They're not going to want to do the research and development. They're not going to want to do the investments for you know the the long term because they're just trying to survive in the short term. We saw this back in in March of 2020 when COVID 19 really took off. It was that second third week there of March. A lot of businesses really went into survival mode. I, I, For my day job, I lead a sales team in the greater telecommunications and cybersecurity space. And that initial six-month period, companies were still meeting. You know, obviously, you still had to be connected. You still, especially workers working from home, still had cybersecurity solutions you needed to put in place, still had business continuity solutions that had to get put in place. But what happened was people were in that kind of fight or flight, survival, just hold on, batten down the hatches. We're not going to make any changes until we kind of figure out what's going on. And what's happened is more and more of those companies have started to get back into, okay, COVID's not either, it's not ending or our approach to handling this. It's not going to cause it just to go away. So we have to get back to some type of normalcy. And we saw this as the red states started to open up. A lot of businesses started to thrive in those specific areas. And we are also seeing a lot of uh, states that were the blue states that are holding back and still maintain these restrictions. The, the companies that were in those locations are now leaving because they're like, we can't keep doing this. That's why you have, I mean, it, it's not the only reason, but it's a big reason why you have people like Elon Musk 
picking up his entire organization and now headquartering it, not in California, but moving it to Texas where you are. Um, that's why you have people like Ben Shapiro taking the Daily Wire and moving it from California to Florida. I think it's Florida is where they moved to. So right. I mean, you have a lot of businesses out there who are following in this, this model because they can't keep relying on the federal government to really tell them, well, yeah, you can open your business or not. But now you've seen the approach to use a federal organization like OSHA to implement this top-down perspective from a government policy, specifically attacking businesses with 100-plus employees. And that's just insane because that's going to impact, what was the number, 80-plus million employees across the United States that would be under this new guideline? So all of a sudden, you're having businesses who they can't escape, right? To the point we're talking about from the individual, you can't just go up and move from your state. You can't just go up and move from the United States. But if you are one of the large entities, that suddenly becomes an option. So the United States is playing a very dangerous game as the rest of the world is starting to accept the reality that COVID-19 is not going away, is likely going to become something like we see every single year, some type of flu. And with that, we're going to have to figure out a way to live with it going forward, whether that's going for the vaccines, if you want that, go for it, whether it's therapeutics, whether it's the way that we live our lives. You look at what Sweden has done. Sweden's been pretty much, you know, light, you know, lights on, doors open from the beginning of the pandemic because they took a very different approach to things. They said, we're going to lock down, not the entire society, but we're going to tell people, hey, if you're a high risk category, right, if you're that 65 and older, or if you have pre-existing conditions, take it easy, you know, stay home, yeah. stay safe. But if you're a 18 year old to 45 year old, chances are, you're, you're, if you get it, it's going to be a mild bug to something a little bit worse, but on average, you are going to be okay. And with that, people made calculated risks. Businesses made calculated risks. When you get rid of the ability for people to make calculated risks, now all of a sudden there is no means for that risk to be taken to then get a reward. So if there is no reward, you're now just neutering the incentive structure from the onset. So what is the, the role of the companies? What do you want us to do if you're a business? And what do we see, Eric? We see right now um, inflation running rampant. We're, I think we're on the, the, the verge right now of incoming stagflation um, because there, there's stuff that's coming in. They're, they're at the ports, but they just can't get it in right now. But we have an influx of money. But also people are holding on to their money. They, they're not really spending it. So we're kind of getting to this very weird place. And I know that was going to go into the second part of our conversation talking about GDP and such. but. There are so many different factors that come into play here. And I think, you know, if from a, a, a truly like ideological difference, you can see the difference between a top-down central planning approach and the bottom-up free market approach and how right. inherently flawed the central planning approach has been. Because what can it do, Eric? It can't factor in every single possible variable that exists. And just by that nature, it can't prepare for every situation that is out there. So by that nature itself, it's inherently going to be a flawed system because when those externalities now enter into the equation, it can't react. It can't adapt as quickly as the people who have the means to take the risk and to figure out what works. And then also to figure out what doesn't work and show people how to avoid those pitfalls. If it's all government and we're all in for the success, but also the failure, that means we're all in for the, the suck when the suck happens. Right. You know, it's F.A. Hayek's fatal conceit. 
You know, this idea that you could yep. have the most brilliant central planners ever to ever live, the most brilliant people who you've picked. These are the smartest economists, the the most like they've got all the degrees from Harvard and all of these elite institutions, and you put them in charge of centrally planning the co- economy. And what's going to happen? doesn't matter how smart they are. No human being can contain the knowledge necessary to plan an entire economy. I mean, down to even it's, it's, it, you know, down to even what are the individual wants and needs of consumers? I mean, everyone's different. You are better at planning for yourself than some central planner is better at planning for you because they don't know your hopes and dreams. They don't know. I mean, Eric, I'm interrupt. That's that's my job, right? I'm a sales and marketing executive. And like my job is not to tell people what they need. My job is to meet them where they're at, figure out what their problems are, and then offer a solution. If I were just to come in and say, you need this glass of water, and you had that as your solution for every single problem, people would be like, what the heck is this guy talking about? That's not my problem. But that's the the, the problem with government bureaucrats and the, and the approach that, yeah, I'm an expert. I know what I'm talking about, is that you, you kind of put yourself in a bubble of people mm-hmm. like you, who think like you, who surround themselves with people like you. And with that, the the confines of what your real world is, your bubble is completely different than the the confines and the bubble of people out there who are actually living by the policies you're enacting. They're not the ones, you know, like at the Met where the the haves, they don't have to wear their masks, but the have nots, the help, you have to wear your masks. And that's what happens. That's the inevitable outcome. You know, and so now we are seeing shortages arrive in America. I remember when the lockdowns began and, uh, you know, people like Elon Musk pointed out the obvious that if you don't produce stuff, you don't have stuff. You can't just tell people, hey, we're not going to work. We're not going to make things and everything's going to be fine. Now, people pointed out at the time, I remember people pointed out, well, there's so much in the supply chain. It's going to be a long time before we see real shortages. Yeah, we might see shortages of things like toilet paper like we did but perhaps that was more about people rushing out and panic buying than it was actually, right. you know, there's a shortage of, of toilet paper shortage. because there's less toilet paper to go around. But now we're like two years, almost two years into this, and those kind of reserves built up in the supply chain are really starting to run out. And now we're being told, well, well, Anthony Fauci uh, lets us know. Well, he seems to change his mind day to day on whether or not we're allowed to celebrate Christmas with our families. But, um, you know, even if we are able to celebrate family with our family, uh, Christmas with our families, they're now uh, coming out and saying the White House is warning Americans may not be able to get the same Christmas treats that they're used to. We're seeing uh, the supply, this supply crisis. Um, we uh, the bottlenecks forming. Um what do you think? What do you think is going to happen? You know, from uh, from your perspective, what, what are you seeing happening uh, as far as the uh, supply chain breakdowns, and um, what do you think people should expect for Christmas this year, Brian? Big old lump of coal from Anthony Fauci. No. Um. Well, let's rewind first. I hate to be that guy, but I think this has just been a reoccurring theme for libertarians this past two years, almost is told you so um i had thomas massey on my show i think it was april may of 2020 um and we were talking about the prime act and talking about the importance of the prime act from a a, you know food sustainability standpoint and being able to maintain 
our food independence here in America by allowing the consumer to buy directly from a local beef provider, right? I had Matt Kibbe on the show at the beginning of the pandemic, and we were talking about the impact directly um, as it pertains to not just the, uh, the, the, the food supply, but also any other um, area in terms of economics from the American populace and how that has had a direct impact. Fast forward to where we are today, the very things that we said were likely going to happen are now happening. And what do we do? <laughs> that, and that's where everybody's like, well, now what, right? We have to let America get back into some sense of normalcy and eliminate the anxiety and the uncertainty. That's often what's holding a lot of these places back. People aren't going to go to work if they're terrified. And I think we also have to point at who has really been one of the main driving factors of this fear and this paranoia, Eric. And I would love to hear your perspectives because as we go through and we look at the different areas where more people are hunkered down and terrified, it's the blue states. And we look at who is predominantly more afraid of COVID, it is Democrats. The, the average number was 40% of Democrats thought that if you got COVID that you would end up in the hospital. Republicans were resoundingly closer to that number. And I think it was in the sub, you know, sub single digits or not sub, but like in the ballpark, single digits. So then you have to ask, okay, well, if you go to an area like a blue city where policy is being dictated by the emotions of people and the anxiety and fear of people voting in these feel good safety policies, keeping me the, 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 you know, the, the, the better person who is double vaxxed, that's the approach now versus the, the have nots, the people who could be. The, the dangerous people out there, I got to stay away from them, but we're going to go ahead and have double the essential vax isn't enough anymore. You got to be triple vaxxed. Oh, that's right. I forgot. I'm no longer fully vaxxed, right? If you're not double vaxxed. So yeah, get your quadruple booster just to be safe. So you're already pre-vaxxed uh, for the time comes that you have to get your fourth booster. But what's going to happen, Eric, is that you have companies, they're either A, going to, to like really push these Democratic lawmakers in these blue states to, to quit the nonsense, quit the anxiety, and, and to help get things back to normal. But also, the, the corporate media has got to stop ramping things up to an 11. And I talked about this with Trump. Every time Trump does something, and he's quite literally Hitler, there's going to come a point in time people stop listening. And I think right. that's where we're the getting boy who to, cried is wolf. that people are... Exactly. People are just so tired, Eric. They've, they've heard for what, a year and a half, two years now that everything you do is going to kill grandma. And there comes a point where your average person's like, you sure? But if the corporate media keeps the intensity at L an 11 at all times for that core group of people who still are going to buy everything they say, hook, line, sinker, it's going to keep them intense. And if they are the ones who are politically active in those areas, of course, you're going to see policy directly follow that. Also, I think we just got an you know, elephant in the room here. Twitter isn't real life. Why are we basing policy on Twitter? We see Jen uh, Saki re responding to, to Twitter posts as if that the Twitter world is real life. I think the number I saw, Eric, and this is just it blows me away. It's like out of all Twitter interactions, like all the Twitter interactions are from 1% of all content uh, drivers on Twitter. So think about that. 99 some odd percent of people on Twitter really are just there engaging in the content. Only 1% are actually producing the content. And then with that, the actual snapshot of Twitter, I forget the percent, but it's it's not even in the ballpark of having a true global presence to the extent mm. it's reflecting not just what the world thinks, but what America thinks. 
And and that's where I think we also get stuck is that in our brains, we, we again, going back to section ourselves off in these group things, we get into our group things on social media and that becomes the reality versus actually going out and talking to your neighbor, right? Go out. I mean, you see people who right now are, are so, you know, furious about critical race theory and, and, you know, you, you go out and you actually talk to somebody in real life that the conversations can be very different. And this is something that we need to really get back to is go out and talk to people like stop going online and just getting angry at the first thing you see and, and actually try to think about the, the issues that your average person is experiencing and how can we communicate with them versus just scare them to death. Right. And, and while fear sells, and this is an important thing that people need to remember. Fear is the number one driving emotion in all sales. And it, it really goes down to this safe uh, sense of safety and security. If we can help give that to people while also giving them the opportunity to embrace an idea of personal autonomy and freedom, then we are doing an infinitely better job than the top-down approach of just trying to say, you're going to be safe and you're going to like it. It's like that scene in Rogue One where uh, the the K2 droid uh, gets Jin out of the, um, the, the, the transport ship. And he, he throws her to the ground. He goes, you're being rescued. Please do not resist. That is how a lot of our friends in the left approach public policy. Sorry, you're unvaccinated. Well, I'm doing this to protect you for your own good. That's not a winning sales strategy. That's not a winning approach to governance. And if anything, it's going to foster, number one, more resentment, right. more people being distrusting. And number three, more people going out and trying to find alternatives beyond the existing solution, which as a sales guy, Eric, it gets me a little excited. You know, it reminds me of old saying, a person convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Uh, people want to be treated like adults. Uh, if, if yes. you know, so, you know, if our government treats us like children and says, you know, we're going to make the decisions for you, for your own personal health. And, and let's be clear, multiple studies have come out now showing that the vaccines are primarily beneficial to your individual health. And as far as their effect on herd immunity and stopping infection and transmission to others, it's, it's very minimal. It, it wears off very quickly. By 20 weeks, there's no distinguishing between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated when it comes to um, uh, infection and transmission rates. But you are, at least according to the study out of Qatar that had these findings, you are less, uh, you are significantly protected up to 95% more protected against having severe um, severe symptoms that could land you in the hospital or, or death. So, you know, if you're a vulnerable person, you're elderly or you have underlying health conditions, you, you may want to really talk to your doctor and see if it makes sense for you. Anyway, besides the point here, but, um, oh, you were on such a tear. You made so many good points. I'm trying to remember some of the things I want to respond to. Um, well, geez, you gotta <laughs> refresh my memory. Um, well, how about this? Because I, I'm going back to this this bottleneck yeah. issue that we have here. Um, and, and I think if I can bring it back to what our goal was, and that was like, well, what can we do? Right. <laughs> yeah, what, what's the actionable thing to do? The actionable thing to do is, number one, we got to turn off yeah. the news. I, I mean, yes. like, if, if you if you know somebody who they are, you know, your, your Fox News, CNN watch in person, they sit in front of the TV all day and they just get angry, have a heart yeah. to heart. Like, like genuinely because you care about them likely. And if you want to see the world kind of get back to normal, I mean, I, here, you know, real, I had a talk with, with my family members just in the past week and they, they they were just so hot about everything that's happening in the world. I mean, just like 
<laughs> caps lock, Facebook posts. And, and I, I talked to them. I said, where do you, where, why are you so mad? And they're like, well, I was watching this show. And I said, there we go. That's the problem. You're watching this show. The show has an incentive to get you angry, to get you emotionally invested. When Don Lemon or Brian Stelter or Chris Cuomo are doing their thing on CNN, they're not giving you news. They're giving you their opinion and they're using news to try to make it so it doesn't feel like it's an opinion to you. And if you're able to turn that off and just read the news, like I don't even care where you're getting your news from, just change the medium. Like if you're so used to watching Fox News, just go to the Fox News print edition for a little bit. Just use that as a means to start getting your news versus the, the tonality, right. the the intensity, and actually just right. kind of they read call, They call it programming then, for a reason. Right, exactly. And then, but then here's the other part. Go find the alternative. Like if you are like, hey, I'm a CNN Democrat and I don't want to read a Fox News, uh, you know, article on this. Well, here's why you should, because what if you're wrong, right? And this is where I think the number two step is beyond just turning off the TV is acknowledge that you might be wrong. And there's something very freeing in that, because if you always go in thinking that you have the right answer at all times, then there's going to come a point in time where guess you believe it or not, you're not going to have the right answer and it's going to hurt. Right? So if you're constantly in the mindset of, I think this is the right approach, but I could be wrong. People are going to look at that as more authentic and trusting because it, it shows them that you're actually trying to find not just your solution, but the right solution. So turn on TV, uh, number one. Number two, start acknowledging that you don't know everything and you could be wrong. And then number three is in terms of an actionable thing, I think we really have to start encouraging people to, to get out. Like you have, if, if you are in an area that is a strong blue area, go surround yourself with good like-minded people, right? And this is not saying that the you know, Democrats or leftists are bad. No, I'm saying if you truly want to feel like you have the opportunity to grow as an individual, but also to see your area thrive, surround yourself with people who think the same way you do. The shared experiences aren't enough. Find shared values and find common goals. And the same thing is true of the friends on the left, right? If you are somebody predominantly on the left and you look at us crazy, you know, us crazy liberty-loving folk as, as a danger, then, okay, then go go live in your blue city and lockdown. Keep yourself safe and embrace your hypochondria. But that's fine. Don't make us do it as well. And if we can start to encourage people to have these conversations with their friends and family, go out and actually talk to real people, we're going to find that more people think like this than we're told think like the, the the corporate media drone that everything is going to be fixed top down, you know, trust your vote blue, no, no matter who build back better. Like that number of people who are truly programmed to believe that no matter what I would say is in the sub 35%, maybe 30%. Yeah. Your average person though, they just want to vote for a winner, Eric. And that's, and that's the problem is that Biden was the winner, but now they're like, well, was he? <laughs> <laughs> and now they're coming to that moment of, Oh, I might've been wrong. Don't make them feel bad. Don't do what I did earlier and say, ha, told you so, but show them that path to redemption and to help them understand that it's okay. You're like, hey, yeah, we all make mistakes. I've been wrong on certain things before too. Here's where I was wrong and here's what we can do. Here's the path forward and give them that actual yeah. path. Well, I want to circle back to one thing uh, and you did jog my memory here. So thank you for that. <laughs> there you go. Talking about the fear <laughs> and the fear that is used. You know, there's that old history, uh, that old saying that history repeats itself. I don't necessarily agree. I don't think history repeats itself, but it certainly does rhyme. And yes, the only situation that I can 
remember in my lifetime that is akin to the level of fear that people are being subjected to now is the post 9-11 fear of terrorism. So this is kind of like the Democrat version of what the neocon establishment put America through after 9-11. If you asked people after 9-11 what their personal risk of being killed in a terrorist attack was, it was way off the charts compared to reality. It was like you were at 0.0001% of being <laughs> chance of being killed in a terrorist attack. But people are like worried that like, you know, terrorists from the Middle East are going to show up and bomb your little like, you know, pumpkin festival celebration in, in like Idaho. It's like, I'm sorry, if, if, if the terrorists have are at the point where they're, you know, bombing the pumpkin festival in Idaho, the terrorists have probably already <laughs> won at that point. <laughs> Um, right. But but this is the level of fear, and and it is something that is specifically cultivated by those who seek power. And look, I mean, the example is, it works. I mean, that fear yep. overrode. I mean, even if you just look at elections, I mean, we often think of this as as one of the abnormal mo moments in terms of electoral history. We talk about how typically when a president is in office and the midterm elections come up, that president's party loses seats. Except we have this one asterisk by this one election in 2002, right? Something happened After, then. you know, George W. Bush, Republicans are, you know, Republican in the White House, 9-11 happens, everyone's afraid of terrorism. And what happens? Define historical norms, Republicans gained seats in Congress solidified their control of Washington, D.C. And I wonder sometimes if there is a little bit of Democrats looking at history and recognizing how do we mm. repeat that? Because otherwise we're on our way out. We just got this taste of finally being back in control again. How do we maintain control? And only by making people afraid, afraid so much that they will give us more power. Only, only through that can they possibly have a path to keep the House and the Senate. So, the, so we all thought that, oh, all right, fine, Joe Biden's in the White House. Democrats, got, they use this COVID fear to get rid of Donald Trump. Okay, fine, but maybe we'll finally go back to some sense of normalcy. But no, they don't seem to want us to go back to normalcy. This seems to be, they say, hey, this fear worked for this election. We've got to see how long we can milk this. So maybe it can work for the next election and we can keep staying in power so we can keep bilking the American people, spending trillions of dollars, handing it out to our campaign contributors. And how long can we let it ride? What do you think? Well, and Eric, yeah, this is, um, you raise a great point. And I think the difference between the two because you're right, they are trying to, to emulate the policy prescriptions post 9-11. But 9-11 was unique in that it was it was legitimately an attack right. on American soil, two of the largest buildings in the world, and, and really an iconic, you know, skyscraper, two iconic skyscrapers on the American or the uh, New York City skyline, that is. And everybody felt that. You know, I was up in northern New York. I'm sure you were up in Maine. I know we, I had family down in Kentucky and Tennessee. I, I knew people out in, in Texas and everybody felt the pain that day. And the also the uncertainty in that anxiety of not knowing what was going to happen next. Whereas with COVID, I think now we're we're two years in and and much like what I think the future uh, scare catastrophe we're going to hear, it's going to be climate change, right? That's going to be the next thing. These two items have been inherently 
poisoned by by politics. 9-11, you could at least make the argument it was a unifying, non-political American moment where Republican, Democrat, Independent, non-affiliated, Libertarian, they all came together as Americans under one common feeling of, okay, we just got hurt today and and we are one. Whereas with COVID, it has been, a sl- it's like a slow right. drip, right? And with that, you've had the opportunity for different political players to enact their political prescriptions. And with that, you've seen an inherent difference between the more liberty individualist approaches of the more right-leaning governors and localities versus those governors and mayors and such who have taken on a much more authoritarian approach, lockdown approach, mandate approach, vaccine passport approach to curtailing the the pandemic. And you look at what's going to happen with climate change. This is going to be the same thing too. You're going to have one side argue for market-based solutions. You're going to have the other side argue for top-down solutions. But there's going to be no real like, you know, unless we have a massive like, you know, uh, Yellowstone National Park eruption, right? Which they would say, oh my God, it was climate change. And here's why we have to do our thing now. Never let a good crisis go to waste, right? Um, But do I see that happening anytime in the immediate future? Probably not, which makes the arguments of using the the 9-11 emotion and the fear it makes it much more difficult, especially when you fast forward 20 years. And I think this is where we have to give the advent of the internet and social media a lot of credit. Despite all the negatives that come from it, we also have the ability to communicate. And, you know, somebody from Florida or Texas or name open state here can just be like, yeah, dude, things are things are fine. Like I, I have a buddy down in Texas. He's like, things have pretty much been open for like, Never, yeah. <laughs> and it, it kind of like hits me. I'm like, yeah, Philly's still weird. If I walk into a, a store with a mask on, I get looked at, or without a mask on, that is, I get looked at like I have four head, like four heads, and it's because the approach has been so different. But I can hear that now, right. right? If I'm in Philly, and that's the only confines of my world, and I'm not getting the same exact message from every single news source I watch. Well, then, yeah, that that just become that's normal, right? Everybody wears their masks when they go inside the store. But if all of a sudden Brian Stelter and Don Lemon don't have the the monopoly on the the dissemination of that information, and I can see in Florida that my friends are are going out having a grand time maskless while COVID's still around, but they're not dropping dead like flies and they're not you know causing their community to, to crumble with, you know, super spreader events. And all of a sudden I can say, well, what's happening out here? Why are, why are we acting like this out here? And it's that questioning that they can't contain. They can't contain us from having these, wait, what? Why? Why are we doing this again? How is this helping us? And that's where they get terrified because they don't want us asking questions. Right. The, the, the moment you start asking questions, the moment they had to start having answers. And if the answers don't make sense and we call BS, right. then what? Right. You know, and I... I this is a very good point. The the decentralizing power of the internet, what it has done for allowing information to be decentralized for, you know, regular people like, you know, me and Brian Nichols to get out there and for people to be able to hear what we have to think on par, you know, on par. In some, in some cases, podcasters are listened to more than CNN <laughs> to Brian yep. Stelter's dismay. 
Maybe it's because, you know, we all know how much CNN has lied to us over the years. Some of its credibility has worn off, especially as they've hired more and more, you know, CIA agents to help them create the news. But um, but of course, that is really what is driving so much of this push in Congress right now to try to limit what people can say on the internet, controls what is put out there on yep. social media. I mean, they already have a model of you know, what a controlled internet could look like. I mean, you just look at China, go over to China and try to Google Tiananmen Square and you're not going to find a whole lot. Uh, so there, there is, you know, you know how they did that, by the way, Eric, you know how they that? did that? They have one, they have one telecom provider. It's called China Telecom. <laughs> um, I had one of my old coworkers, uh, he works or works, worked for them. Um, and if you want to do business in China and get on the internet, the only provider you can go through is China Telecom. That'd be like if there was United States Verizon, right? And it was only the United States Verizon Telecom Company. And if you want to do business in the United States, you can only go through the right. United States Verizon Telecom Company. Right. See some problems right. there? <laughs> well, it does make you wonder, though, what are some different paths that the United States government could try to achieve this? Because, I, you know, it's it seems like there is... You know, the U.S. government is often fine with there being a variety of, you know, a few different big corporations you can choose from uh, if, as long as they're the ones kind of writing the regulations and controlling how the big corporations, you know, what, what they do. The right, it kind of gives you kind of an illusion of choice. It's like, well, I get to control uh, choose between this controlled corporation or this controlled corporation. I mean, I think this is oftentimes a big driving factor in so many of the regulations that are pushed. So yes. To drive out the little guys, to drive out the small business uh, owners who are less able to be controlled through yes. top-down federal government regulation. Uh, and so it kind of, it kind of, sometimes we think of, isn't that wild though? Really quick. I mean, interrupt Eric. Isn't that wild when you think about it though, that the smaller mom and pop type of shops are harder to right? control than the corporations. And like that goes inverse to how much we've been we've been programmed over the years you hear big corporation bad because big corporation doesn't listen to government to the contrary big corporation wants to maintain their subsidies big corporation wants to maintain you know favorable relationships with the government so they get good kickbacks so of course they're going to play ball oh and if it ends up having their entire competition that are you know the mom and pop shops get hurt along the way eh, that's right. federal damage it is uh it is what uh mussolini would call a fascist system it is the merger of corporate interests and government interests, and this idea that we live in free market capitalism is a bit of a bit of a myth that has been eroded piecemeal over the years, and we just need to look around us today. Uh, the the corporations that are succeeding <clears throat> tend to be on the dole <laughs> with the with the federal government. They tend to be lobbying for regulations over their industry as long as they can be the ones to write the regulations. So, yeah, it is. Um, you know, and, and I think it also boils down to a simple point of these big corporations. Obviously, they have more clout to kind of push back and, and shape the re you know regulations in the way that they're written. But right. um, but it's easier to control three points of access than a million points of access. You have a million little yep. small businesses making up an industry versus three big corporations. It's much easier to control the three big corporations. Bingo. Well, and this is why we have seen such a consolidation of power over the past two years with 
these really large entities like Amazon, right? Uh, the reason being is because now they have been able to, through the, the pandemic, really focus on what they do well. And let, let's be real. They do some things well. They do really good job at delivering a package in less than, you know, 12 hours if you do, you know, that, that you know, quick shipping. But at the same point in time, along the way, they've also weeded out a lot of their competition. So now not only have they captured more market share, but God forbid when the time comes that they they truly do have a monopoly, which would never exist, by the way, were it not for government existing, then all of a sudden, what what alternatives are you going to have? Because by the way, it's going to be even harder to start a business in 2021 than it was in, in you know 1980 versus you know your your competitors just from the regulatory standpoint. And that's something that we need to, I think if we're looking to to win more people over, there are people out there who are of the entrepreneurial mind and they see this. And they're like, this is ridiculous. What is this nonsense? And say, you're like, yeah, I, I trust me. I hear you. And how do we mobilize them? How do we activate them? And this is why what you're doing at Young Americans for Liberty with your team, what I'm doing at my show is, is I think it's not only playing the role that it's supposed to play, but it's actually having impact because now we can take sometimes these issues that get stuck in the world of politics where people don't like to engage in the conversation because we've been told politics is not one of the, it's like the, one of those third rails. You just don't talk about it. Right. But more and more people are starting to realize that without me talking about politics, politics certainly is getting involved in my life, whether I like it or not. Maybe it's time I start to speak up. I'm in sales groups right. all over social media and they all do. Oh, it's Friday. I'm looking forward to my paycheck. And then the tax man can get his too. And like, they all acknowledge the elephant in the room that yeah, government, plays a pretty shitty role in terms of actually, you know, helping us achieve our goals, our wants, our desires as professionals. But then it comes to like their voting behavior. They're like, I don't vote. Voting doesn't get me anything. It's like, it does get you something. It gets you a lighter paycheck every single week. But like, how do we help tie those right. roles together? It's, it's showing actionable steps they can right. take. And I think right there, Eric, you know, that's been the hardest thing. People don't know what right. to do. They, they, they feel like, okay, I have an internet where I can Google anything, you know, and I can get a bajillion different results and I can maybe go through 10 of those pages and find some tips and tricks, but like, will they work for me? Right. Will it work for the situation I'm in? But at the same point in time, if they were to have somebody like a trusted advisor, like you, like me, like name person here who, who knows this stuff and they can talk about this stuff and then show a path forward, say, Hey, yeah. You don't like what's been happening with the way that your city has been reacting to to, to COVID nineteen. Hey, come with me to um to a city council meeting. We have a bunch of friends who are going right. to be going, and we're going to be you know asking a few questions. Would you be interested? And, and now all of a sudden, you're showing them that oh yeah, I can actually have a voice. It's not just that I have an opinion and I'm experiencing the suck, but now I can actually make things better. And it's the idea that we can take somebody from where they are now and bring them to that positive future state that we've been missing. Because your average person, they see politics and it's gross. And they're right. right. It is gross. And inherently, they try to Federal stay out of it. politics especially. But more, exactly. And, but, and that's why COVID has really been a blessing in disguise for a lot of us on the right. And I would say predominantly in this greater liberty world is because regardless whether you were in politics or not, politics got involved with you. And we're seeing people like... In what freaking world am I applauding Kyrie Irving and Nicki Minaj for standing up and asking questions? But politics makes weird bedfellows, man. And so do yeah. like national or global pandemics. And I mean, 
they're asking questions now and you like once you see it you can't unsee right. it you know what i mean right you know it, it two points i want to make here first of all i think you talk about strange bedfellows i, I was listening to one of tucker carlson's monologues recently and he was talking about, hey, you might notice on the show, we have leftists on like Glenn Greenwald he says, I, you know, I don't frankly know where Glenn Greenwald stands on issues like abortion, but that's kind of besides the point in America today, yep. because the real question in front of us is authoritarianism versus a free America. So whether you're left yep. or right, if you believe in a free America, Maybe you're more socially liberal or socially conservative, what have you. But if you believe that we should be able to make those decisions and, you know, uh, locally and in our own lives as much as possible, as long as we're not harming other people. I mean, that's the libertarian ethic. As long as you're not violating the rights of other people, you should be able to make whatever damn choice you want. Even if I don't like it, don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff. Absolutely right. Um, this is the new dividing line. Do you believe in a free America or do you believe in an authoritarian America that Joe Biden and including the Liz Cheney's and the Bidens of the world? It's bipartisan, these folks who who want to create an empire for us to live Thank in. Thank you. Thank you. I hate that word, bipartisan. It gives me just the heebie-jeebies because evil things can be done with two people who disagree shaking hands on the one thing they agree on, and that is control. And Eric, like that has been one of the, the worst, uh, the worst lines coming from our, our libertarian friends and frankly, some of our Republican friends is this bipartisan, tripartisan appeal. Stop with the partisanship. People, your average person, it doesn't mean anything to them. They want to see the problems in their lives solved. They don't care bipartisan, tripartisan, quadpartisan, quint, quad, are these things? I don't know. But like, we don't need this. We don't need more parties. We don't need more, you know, we don't need more people arguing over nonsense. We need people to get out of the way and empower people and give them the means and not through government, but the means by pulling government back to let them right. thrive. That will be the difference it's not through bipartisanship. It's not through tripartisanship. It's through right. empowering the individual. Because to quote my good friend Spike Cohen, you are the power. It's not the people up at the top. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I like to think that we should be striving for postpartisan, a postpartisan world. We're, yes. we're leaving that. We're leaving yes. that partisan stuff behind. I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian. I care about what you stand for. I care about what you're fighting for. I care about if you want to rob me of my freedoms and paychecks or you want to protect my freedoms and paychecks. That's the dividing line I care about. And to what you're saying there, and we're getting to the end of the hour where we got to wrap up, but last thing I want to respond to what you're saying there is we often do feel powerless to do anything about this political system, especially because the media focuses us so much on the circus in Washington, D.C. It often seems to me like the circus in Washington, D.C. is the new Colosseum of ancient Rome. It's there to just entertain the people, keep us distracted, bread and circus. Well, the real decisions aren't even being made in the Colosseum in Washington. It's being made by the unelected folks. And frankly, we put so much time and energy into try, who do we get elected president? Who do we get elected to the U.S. Senate and to Congress? And don't get me wrong, I'm so glad that we have people like Rand Paul and Thomas Massey there. I'm glad that we have a few voices of sanity. But at the end of the day, I think about how much energy we've put into these federal races. And look, I, you know, I've run for federal office twice. So 
you know, I guess I'm speaking a little bit from experience here. I didn't win either of those, but I've also served in my state legislature. I served in the state Senate. I've seen what a difference you can make on the state level, not just fighting back against state tyranny, which we really need right now when so many of the lockdowns are coming from these governors, but also against federal tyranny because the constitutional system is still built in such a way that it requires the consent of the states for them to get away with this. And you might not be yep. able to impact in a real, real significant way who your president is or who, who your U.S. senator is. You could throw millions of dollars into these races and it could be like spitting into the ocean. But you can make an impact on who your local state representative is. And one good state representative can make all the difference. One good state representative can sponsor the legislation to say, you know what? Our state's not following these mandates from the federal government. I don't see in the Constitution where we ever gave them this power in the first place. And if the, and if your state goes along with that and stands firm, what is the federal government going to do about it? We have more power than we realize. And that's why at Young Americans for Liberty, we focused on getting principled, liberty-minded people elected to the state legislatures, because that's where regular people can make a difference. Let the circus go on in Washington, D.C. Let's just make the circus irrelevant to our daily lives. I'll give you the last word. Amen. Jack Hunter, good friend of ours. What is it? Politics is wrestling. It's not all it is. It's nothing more than wrestling. And uh, to, to paraphrase the one and only Ferris Bueller, um, I don't believe in isms. I just believe in me. To quote John Lennon, he was the walrus. Maybe I could be the walrus, but it still wouldn't uh, change the fact that I had to bum rides off of people because I don't have a car. All right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a note to end on. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thank you so much to Brian Nichols for joining us. Brian, one more time, where can people follow you and, uh, and find your, your own show? Absolutely. Eric, well, number one, again, thank you for the opportunity to join you here. Uh, just great conversation. And uh, yeah, number two, folks, go ahead and follow me at the Brian Nichols Show. You can find me at briannicholsshow.com. And we have so much stuff there. Uh, not only do we have 370 plus episodes, which yes, Eric, as you had mentioned, you have frequented uh, many a time uh, in, from debates to solo episodes to conversations with you and I. Um, we also have our morning sales huddles, which is a one-on-one -on -one email uh, coming to your inbox every single day, Monday through Friday, uh, where literally it's what I do with my sales team every day, go through and sit down, focus on the fundamentals. How do you become a better salesperson, not just in your, your life, but in your career, in politics, across the board. Uh, and then also beyond that, we have our Patreon. So if folks are interested in either A, becoming a super fan or an insider for the show, they can sign up $5 or $10 a month there. Or if they're looking for one-on-one -on -one sales coaching with yours truly, uh, quarterly or monthly, also over the Patreon, all of that can be found at Brian Nichols Show. Com. Eric Brakey, thank you so much for having me on, my friend. Hey, the pleasure is all mine, Brian. All right, thank you, everyone. Furthermore, my opinion is the Federal Reserve should be destroyed. I'll talk to you all tomorrow. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe. Want to help us reach more people? Give the show a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. 
Find us at briannicholsshow.com and download the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me on social media at bnicholsliberty and consider donating to the show at briannicholsshow.com forward slash support. The Brian Nichols Show is supported by viewers like you. Thank you to our patrons, Daryl Schmitz, Laura Stanley, Michael Lima, Mitchell Mankiewicz, Cody Johns, Craig DaCosta, and the We Are Libertarians Network. Trust the experts. We're all in this together. If it saves one life. Raise your hand if you heard any of those tiresome phrases over the past year and a half. I know my hand is currently raised. Millions of people across dozens of industries were labeled unessential and forced to lock down with livelihoods and futures crushed in an instant. And as government has continued to expand its power and leverage fear to turn neighbor against neighbor, a group of filmmakers have taken a stand and are determined to help set the record straight on the importance of following the actual science of the pandemic. Follow the Science on Lockdowns and Liberty from the Sound Mind Creative Group is a brand new docu-series highlighting the stories of those negatively impacted over the past year and a half by ineffective government policies enacted in the name of following the science. With noted experts like Nick Hudson from Panda, the Pandemic Data and Analytics Organization, healthcare policy advisors like Scott Atlas, and telling the stories of business owners, families, and just your average everyday person harmed by these government mandates. Follow the Science on Lockdowns and Liberty is giving us a chance to make sure the true stories of the pandemic are told. So please help us at The Brian Nichols Show in supporting the Sound Mind Creative Group. With noted figures in the Liberty Movement like Dr. Tom Woods donating thousands of their own dollars to this project, you know just how important this project is. So head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash follow the science to donate and catch their brand new trailer to the docuseries one more time. That's briannicholsshow.com forward slash follow the science.